good to... Um... Hi, great to see you all here. Thanks for coming in such, such wonderful numbers. One of the, the fastest selling out events at the, the Book Festival. Not quite the fastest, though, first minutes. I think, uh, I think Sean Connery beat you to that, but there we are. <laughs> Uh, good evening and a very, very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and this, this keynote event of that. Welcome in particular to the annual, annual National Library of Scotland lecture in memory of Donald Dewar. Now Donald, as I'm sure you will agree in this audience, was a great Scot. He was intelligent, droll, learned, compassionate and he was dedicated to the advancement of Scotland. It's often said that he was self-deprecating and he would indeed frequently criticise himself but that was... Only the case if there wasn't another target for his sharp wit conveniently at hand. I think, though, it's particularly fitting that this event is hosted by the National Library of Scotland because Donald was notably bookish. If you let him loose in the National Library on a Monday, you could expect to see him round about Thursday lunchtime, perhaps emerging, blinking and bubbling with joy at the treasures that he had found. It's fitting, too, I think, that he is annually commemorated here at the Book Festival with a lecture that has gained a deserved reputation as a series for annually posing the question, stands Scotland where she did? Tonight, I'm sure that reputation for this series will be enhanced. I'm delighted to welcome on your behalf Alex Salmon, the First Minister of Scotland. The history of his relationship with Donald Ewer is perhaps instructive. They were, of course, political adversaries. They differed fundamentally over whether Scotland should remain in a parliamentary union with England or not. And yet they contrived to agree and more they contrived to campaign together alongside each other in the referendum which led to the recreation of Scotland's parliament. Here's a wee personal note from me. I liked Donald Dewar and I like Alex Salmond. I, I warmed to his blend of intellect and rascally humour, the, 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 the strong note on the, the rascally bit. Um, Self-deprecating self is perhaps not the first, <laughs> perhaps not the first description that comes to mind, but, uh, but Alex Salmond is a fine man, a very fine man, and a talented, dedicated political leader. Here's another little personal note, and I'm sure he, he'll make a rascally reference to it anyway, so I might as well get in first. Alex and I were at university together in St Andrews. He was leader of the Federation of Student Nationalists, and I was editor of the student paper, so no change there. The young, the young bold salmon affected a form of headgear in those days, which I can only describe as a Maoist cap. This he perched confidently atop his extremely slim frame. <laughs> However, I'm in no position to carp. My similarly, similarly slim frame was then topped by a fedora. <laughs> I know, God. <laughs> Alex is many things. He's an economist by profession, a nationalist by inclination. He's passionate about all things Scottish. Indeed, it's only by dint of physical persuasion on the part of his anxious colleagues that he can be prevented on pretty well every occasion from crooning Ald Scott's ballads. Friends, a real treat in store. Scotland's First Minister commemorates for us Scotland's first First Minister. Will you join me in welcoming Alex Salmond? Well, Brian, thanks very much. I'd forgotten about the fedora. <laughs> Luckily for you. 
Well, actually, unluckily for you, because I didn't actually have that in my remarks, yeah. Brian, and now everybody's heard about it anyway. Uh, of course, in the New Scotland, ladies and gentlemen, we have lots of exercises in direct democracy, and therefore I'm just going to start with one. Jem, uh, who apparently he is known as that because he is a gem. Jem, raise the lights in the auditorium. Boy. And they were raised, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> she was. Tomorrow I'm going to part the Red Sea. Uh, <laughs> been done. It won't stop me doing it again, Brian. <laughs> it's what the BBC call a repeat. <laughs> the, uh, now, the exercise in direct democracy, ladies and gentlemen, you may remember before Brian overstepped the mark. <laughs> uh, who prefers the lights up? Right, well, you have to put your hands up. You can't even vote unless you put your hands up. This is not the Scottish Parliament elections. There's no electronic voting here. Who prefers the lights down? Jem, turn the lights down. <laughs> Brian spoke the truth. Uh, he and I were at university together. There were some kind words there, Brian, and of course I deserved every last one <laughs> of your kind words, uh, given my self-effacing, self-deprecating <laughs> style that you mentioned. The reason I deserve, indeed, occasionally get praise from Brian is because Brian has a long memory and he may well remember, not the Maoist cat, but the fact that I presented him with his first ever journalistic scoop. And then, therefore, are responsible, I suppose, Brian, for launching you on the, the road to fame and fortune. Well, fame anyway, I mean, <laughs> by the time the BBC gets finished paying Clarkson and Paxman, there's no money for anybody else. <laughs> These were in the... The salad days, the fedora days, the, the Maoist cap days. It was 1977. Brian was editor of Iron, which helped enormously in getting it as the lead story, our journalistic scoop. The positioning in the paper was absolutely... The story, if I remember, appeared in a, a joint byline of... I can't, I can't remember whose name appeared first, Brian. And <laughs> these things were kind of important because it was a mere five years after Woodward and Bernstein blew up in the Watergate scandal. But the headline, which was later repeated word for word in the Dundee Courier and Advertiser, that was in page seven, but that was the lead <laughs> news story in these days. No such thing as anything but adverts in the front page of the Courier in these days was, quote, secret files scandal exposed. And it concerned, of course, the outrage of Scotland's oldest university keeping tabs on potentially disruptive students. There was a modicum of vested interest for Brian and I in exposing this story, it should be said. Now, in my defence, in my position now as First Minister of Scotland, I now realise, uh, which I didn't then, that the, the huge difficulties this freedom of information stuff is. And in retrospect, I, I can find and see that it was an entirely sensible precaution by the university authorities was dressed up by Brian to look like a major sinister conspiracy. And it was only then, I think, Brian, that I realized the glittering prizes of journalism way in late for you. And I couldn't possibly hope to compete in a field which required such prodigious quantities of completely unscrupulous use of talent. <laughs> uh, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, some of this passage shouldn't be taken entirely uh, seriously. But it is one thing that 
Brian said is absolutely correct, and that is that it's an honour to deliver uh, this year's Donald Dewar Memorial Lecture. Uh, just as a, it's an honour to follow in Donald's footsteps as Scotland's fourth First Minister. I'd like to thank the Edinburgh International Book Festival for inviting me here this evening. I know it's a special year for the Book Festival, following as it does on the 500th anniversary of the first book ever printed in Scotland. The National Library has a fine exhibition of 500 years of the printed word in Scotland. To my knowledge, the first collection bringing together Napier's Logarithms, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Beza Annual. <laughs> As a loyal Dundee United fan, yeah, yeah. Brian has read the Beza more than he's read the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> In fact, you've had quite a few Beezers playing for you. <laughs> but the Edinburgh Book Festival, the largest festival of its kind in the world, now celebrating its 25th year, can look with great pride and success. And, and looking across from, uh, uh, from Butte House, uh, I always marvel at how this part of Edinburgh is transformed. I mean, with all the festival venues, yeah, I think this is the one that's transformed more than, more than any other. And as you walk around the book festival, you do actually come into uh, a totally different world, quite a wet world, I noticed uh, <laughs> this afternoon, but nonetheless, it is absolutely transformed. And of course, we can take great heart from the success of Scottish writers enjoying worldwide recognition. Now, next week, uh, as Brian mentioned, we have the... Uh, we have the uh, pleasure of welcoming a new literary star to Scotland, albeit a well-kent face, when uh, Sean Connery launches his autobiography. Now, of course, that event has indeed been the draw of the book festival. I realise that those here this evening obviously couldn't get a ticket to the main event next week. <laughs> However, I'll comfort myself by thinking that the second billing to Sean, just like fourth billing to Donald Dewar, uh, is no disgrace. Tomorrow, I and the Cultural Minister, Linda Fabiani, will be meeting the International Media Corps, uh, who have set up shop and camp in, in Edinburgh for most of this month. We'll talk to them about the continued and growing success of the world's greatest cultural festival, and we'll use the opportunity to give even greater exposure to our plan for homecoming celebrations uh, next year. Now, I did a, a national conversation event in, uh, in Pitlochry this afternoon. Uh, and I asked the audience in Pitlochry Toon Hall uh, how many had heard of the homecoming, and I was delighted, in fact relieved, because there were several journalists here, <laughs> that about 80% of the folk in Pitlochry immediately put their hands up. So I, I think this is something which is capturing the imagination in Scotland. There's a nice booklet that I can arrange for anybody who wants to see. Next year, of course, is the 250th anniversary of the birth of uh, Robert Burns, uh, Scotland's national poet, something by definition that happens 250 years, every 250 years, and therefore is something which by definition is particularly uh, special. Uh, the National Bard has had a bit of publicity uh, in the last week. Not entirely on message, uh, I thought. Uh, thanks to the, well, the aforementioned extremely well-paid employee of the BBC. Now, in the spirit of homecoming, and I want you to convey this to your colleague, Brian, uh, I, I don't kick a man when he's busy fly fishing in Scotland. Uh, particularly one who cried on television when he found out he had Scottish ancestry. <laughs> I was thinking that was Jeremy's most human moment. However, I'm merely going to state I've got absolute confidence that in 200 years in Mayor 
Of course, there are bound to be, there must be, there certainly will be international celebrations of Jeremy Paxman's suppers. <laughs> what is certain is that next year, from Burns Night to St Andrews Night, there'll be a hundred national events around Scotland, uh, from the southwest of Scotland to Shetland, and five themes of Burns, of Scottish culture in its broadest sense, of uh, endeavour and science and innovation, of whisky, of golf, and in the five themes we'll seek to attract the 40 million first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Scots around the planet and their friends, that's about another 40 million. Anybody that's been to Saltcoats on a rainy Sunday, they'll do just fine. Uh, there is, and we wouldn't be Scottish if there wasn't method in our madness, there is a, a financial goal at the end of this. This is a, an opportunity, I feel, uh, to turn what might be a tourist recession next year into a visitor boom. Uh, and incidentally, it's not just the festivals of Edinburgh which are booked out next year. I understand that uh, the gathering, which is one of the big homecoming events, uh, next July has already booked out the direct flights from Canada and America uh, a year in advance. Now, we'll get more flights on, don't worry about that, but it's a good indication <laughs> uh, that the homecoming idea is catching fire, not just in Lochray Town Hall, uh, but across the planet. And of course, there is a role for each and every one of you uh, since each and every one of you almost certainly, certainly in fact, has relatives in the Earps and Perps and the four corners of the planet, encourage them to say that whatever else they do, next year, the 250th anniversary of Robert Burns is a year where they must come and pay us a visit, short or long, as long as possible, but must come back uh, and join in that national uh, celebration. Another method of madness, of course, is if we make a success of the homecoming, then homecoming plus one, homecoming plus two, <laughs> homecoming plus three will probably go pretty well as well, and homecoming plus five will be able to celebrate Chris Hoy winning three gold medals at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. <laughs> Having just come out of retirement. <laughs> so, the reaching out to diaspora part of homecoming uh, and I'll be delighted that uh, the festivals, of course, will be playing their part uh, in that enterprise. So, my government has great hopes for the year of homecoming, for Scottish culture, for our economy, for our international standing. Uh, and I can say, ladies and gentlemen, with total confidence that the pride and ambition of homecoming would have struck a chord with Donald Dewar, uh, because Donald Dewar was, above all, a proud Scot. Born in Glasgow, he was one of... Uh, a golden generation of debaters trained at Glasgow University, the likes of Ming Campbell, the late John Smith, my own special advisor, Professor Neil McCormack, people who uh, are drawn, were drawn to a life of very substantial uh, public service. Uh, Donald was a, an outstanding parliamentarian over more than a, a quarter of a century as a Westminster MP, his time in the cabinet, as first minister of Scotland. But for all his many achievements, I'm sure, I'm certain, that Donald's proudest moment surrounded his return home in helping to reinstate the Scots Parliament and of leading this country eh, as the First Minister. He was certain that the gaining of autonomy for Scotland would only strengthen this country and its people and that Scotland's potential would grow and strengthen as time went on, and so it is proving. And I think in Scotland today, we, we see a country not intimidated by its present constitutional position. We see a restless nation in the best sense, a new energy, a new confidence, uh, a people in a parliament joined with a, a new ambition. 
and looking forward, I hope, to the possibilities of future constitutional change. Now, Donald and I were, were never close friends. Uh, the nature of competition in politics between the, the Labour Party and the SNP would have made that impossible. However, we had one brief period, but uh, I think quite significant period of very close cooperation in the run-up to the devolution referendum of uh, 1997. Uh, Brian alluded uh, to that period in his, uh, in his introduction, uh, and it was not just uh, remarkable uh, that Donald Jude and I managed to, as it were, stay together in that campaign, because believe me, there was plenty of people, not Brian, of course, but his more unscrupulous colleagues, who took great fun and delight in trying to prize us apart. And the reason we managed to stay together is that despite the fact we had different objectives for the future of Scotland, uh, we agreed to state that the future of Scotland is what we agreed was that the Scottish people would determine the future of Scotland. And if we stuck to that point, that these matters would be determined by the people of Scotland, uh, then no uh, attempt by the nefarious press corps of Scotland could uh, drive us apart. And we stuck to that right through the referendum campaign and stuck to it successfully. I remember at the very start of the, the campaign, just to show you how uh, close the cooperation was, the, uh, Donald had had uh, was, uh, the blow of uh, a suicide, a tragic suicide of a, a, a Labour uh, a member of uh, Parliament. Uh, and a, a suspicion, more than a suspicion, that uh, uh, some infighting had been a contributory cause of the, of the, the uh, poor gentleman's uh, uh, tragic end. Uh, and this was on the day that we were meant to be launching the devolution referendum campaign. Uh, understandably, and they were doing their job, the Scottish Press Corps leapt in to pressurise the, the Secretary of State on aspects of, uh, of the tragedy. Uh, and I felt it was my duty to move in between Donald and the Scottish Press Corps to say and as convincing a term as I could, all parties go through phases like that. This is something that can happen in any organisation at any time. Well, meanwhile, I was thinking, I can't quite remember circumstances that were quite developing like that, but nonetheless, it was an alliance which stood the test of a turbulent campaign with many eventualities, including, for example, the death of Princess Diana, which could have blown it off course. Uh, but I found that period of cooperation uh, with Donald Dewar extremely fruitful, not just in terms of what we managed to do together, but also extremely fruitful in terms of what it made possible for Scotland. I like to think that beyond party interest, and incidentally, party interest is not a mean or unreasonable thing for a party leader to consider. It is actually something which is the duty of a party leader to consider. But beyond party interests, we were convinced, Donald Dewar and myself, that the joint campaign in the referendum was in the national interest. It was simply, ladies and gentlemen, the right thing to do. Indeed, Donald once said later to a real friend of his, Lord Elder, that the process of devolution was like holding on to the back of a tagger but it was, quote, the right thing to do. He delivered many fine parliamentary speeches, but I think without any question, the outstanding speech was at the opening of the Scots Parliament in the Mound. That's the first official opening of the Scots Parliament. And I just want to read you a small section of that speech just to understand the scale and the quality 
uh, of what we're talking about. Donald said this, he said, this is more about than about our politics and our laws. This is about how, who we are, how we carry ourselves. In the quiet moments today, we might hear some echoes from the past. The shout of the welder and the din of the great Clyde shipyards. The speak of the mairns with the soul in the land. The discourse of the Enlightenment when Edinburgh and Glasgow were alight held to the intellectual life of Europe. The wild cry of the great pipes and back to the distant cries of the Battle of Bruce and Wallace. The past is part of us, but today there is a new voice in the land, the voice of a democratic parliament, a voice to shape Scotland, a voice for the future. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing of party or faction in these remarks. It's a call to history in order to face the future. The sense that Scotland as a nation has the maturity and confidence to calmly weigh the arguments and make our own choices. Now we often think, and I often think of these choices when I talk about the right of the Scottish people to choose, I think of these choices as being about the Constitution. But, but the choices actually are about everything that touches every area of our lives. Education, health, social services, culture. And my argument is as people consider these choices on these practical issues, then the case for having maximum control, the maximum available autonomy that you can have becomes irresistible. The linkage between the constitutional aims and ambition and the bread and butter issues. Now tonight I want to illustrate this by talking about one subject, a subject which often is considered uh, by uh, political writers, by uh, analysts to be beyond the scope of the Scottish Parliament. And it's understandable that it is. Uh, a subject which many would argue right now is at the mercy of international events or indeed the policy mix from the Treasury. But even here on the economy, for this is what I want to speak about tonight, we have the ability, if we so choose, to impact on our circumstances. Not completely, of course, but substantially, in a way which would not have been possible without a parliament and indeed without a government. Scotland had a number of very substantial sectors of state for Scotland. Not as many as we should have had, we had a number of very insubstantial ones as well, <laughs> but we had a number of substantial ones. But even the best of these had difficulties in doing what is now available to us, even with limited powers in the economy. If you take Tom Johnson, for example, the post-war Labour sector state, Tom Johnson had a vision, had many visions actually, but one vision was to, to harness one of the great natural resources of Scotland, the water of Scotland, uh, and to convert that into power uh, for the Highlands, to bring the, the Highlands uh, communities into the 20th century using that endowment from hydropower uh, to uh, complete the, or stimulate the economic development of these parts of Scotland. It was a fantastic vision. Willie Ross, a strong sector of state in the 1960s and 70s, apparently he was called Basil Profundo. I think Harold Wilson, that was his pet name for him. But Willie Ross used to thump the cabinet table and demand a, a greater share of regional policy. Otherwise, the nationalists the, would run all over the Labour Party in Scotland and that was his basic weapon to, to extract concessions for Scotland from the Treasury. George Younger, more recent times, George Younger was a substantial figure, in my opinion, 
who sought to as far as you could. And he had uh, a boss, uh, <laughs> a prime minister, uh, who, <laughs> although some people say to the contrary, must have posed some difficulties in working for, I think. But George Younger, as far as he could, sought to shelter the nation, the country, uh, from what he regarded perhaps as the policy excesses of his own boss. But none of these people, however substantial, were in a position to respond to, never mind to shape big economic challenges, however substantial. And Tom Johnson, by repute, by legendary repute, used to have his resignation in his top uh, desk drawer uh, and let Churchill know that the resignation was in the drawer. Uh, and if he didn't get his own way on certain things, then the resignation would be coming out. And Churchill, who was right through the wartime, was... Uh, was fearful of uh, an uprising in the, the Red Clyde side, as had happened in terms of industrial action in the First World War, in which he'd been involved, thought or gave sway to Johnston and gave him latitude over a number of things. But despite the fact that these were big figures, they didn't have the, the same scope as we now have to attempt to shape and to change and to affect our environment. They were, at the end of the day, place people of the Prime Minister. They were not elected on a, a democratic mandate. They had the ability or the right or the discretion to pursue distinctive policies in the interest of the people. They could lobby, they could campaign, they could make achievements, they could protect, but they hadn't the democratic authority in which to develop distinctive policies for the country. Now, we face as a country economic challenges, and some of these we face in common with the Western world. We also face a situation where our determination over macroeconomic policy, over the setting of interest rates, over the fiscal balances, is extremely limited. But nonetheless, I think it's right and proper that the government, that is the Scottish government, commits itself to focus our efforts towards a single overarching purpose of increasing sustainable economic growth in Scotland. And that applies in these tough times even more than it's pertinent in easier times. So we'll do our utmost to support and sustain economic growth to work with the UK government to leave the pressure on households and businesses across the country. And more than that, I want to restate a basic contention of the government, that there is every reason to be confident in the future of the Scottish economy, our workforce or businesses, and this country's ability to define and seize new economic opportunities. Now, all of us this evening uh, are familiar, whether from Scotland or from much further afield, of the global slowdown, increasingly of potential recession. I was in America last year, last autumn, when the R word, the recession word, was first used by a, a major public policy uh, official. Last week, we heard the governor of the Bank of England use the R word for the first time as a major official. Growth in the advanced economies is faltering. In the euro area, output has fallen, albeit slightly for the first time since the exception of the single currency. Growth in the United States remains marginally positive, but inflation is rising sharply. Having said that, the recent appreciation of the dollar is an indicator that the aggressive interest rate cuts has underpinned confidence in the economy, but the woods are still dark and deep as anyone here with stocks in the United States market will know from the events of this afternoon. Meanwhile, the 
The Governor of the Bank of England has said that growth in the UK could be flat in the coming year. The R word has now been mentioned by the Governor. The impact of the global credit crunch affecting financial markets from the most complex derivatives to the simplest loans and savings accounts and the understanding of it are reasonably well known. The effect of higher prices for key commodities pushes up the cost of household basics of food and fuel. In my view, incidentally, the impact of that was the determining factor in the Glasgow East by-election of a few weeks ago. Uh, across the United Kingdom over the last year, according to the Office of National Statistics, petrol prices have risen by a quarter. The cost of food has increased by 10%. And that's fed through to general inflation, currently running at 4.4%. The Governor of the Bank says it will go over 5%. So the challenge facing us, and the challenge on which the Scottish Government is firmly focused, is maintaining growth and business confidence eh, as inflation has to come back under control and ensuring that this year, next year and beyond, the Scottish economy continues to demonstrate resilience. And thus far, it should be said that resilience in the Scottish economy is encouraging. Economic growth in Scotland has slowed, but is positive and it's kept up in the last three quarters or exceeded that of the UK. Unemployment in Scotland is still declining. Employment is still rising. Unemployment in the rest of the UK is rising. Unemployment is declining. Scottish house prices, as many of you will know here, would hardly be said the housing market was in a great condition at the present moment, but it's not in a state of collapse as it is perhaps elsewhere. Prices have still shown a marginal increase since the start of the year. High street spending has continued to grow. Retail sales figures are about 7% up, actually, in last year in Scotland, with much lower increases elsewhere. The trade figures are good. The export figures are good. In the renewable energy sector in Scotland, there's been £2 billion of investment announced in the last four weeks. And among other similar new developments, Scotland's population has reached its highest level since 1983 something for which my government claims absolute and complete credit. <laughs> Although I understand there's been some cooperation from other people in the community. <laughs> in short, the outlook for the Scottish economy is still positive. We're not insulated from the effects of global slowdown. We are resistant, but we're not immune. And you don't have to go too far to see the impacts of the credit crunch the construction market, the financial sector, hopefully some of the bitter pills that are being swallowed now will help medium-term recovery. Despite the recent fall in oil prices, higher energy prices are here for the long term. That in turn perhaps will support the transition to a lower carbon economy in Scotland powered by clean and green energy. But adjustment, economic adjustment, as many families know, can be extremely painful. Now, the case I want to make tonight, with active and judicious intervention, the effects can be limited or mitigated. And that can be done even in a context of the Scottish Government having limited economic powers. We have to recognise that much of what we do should be to call on those who are charged with the responsibility to do it to take more serious action than they've done thus far to boost the economy. One idea of gaining credibility at Westminster at the present moment Supported, for example, by the All-Party Enterprise Committee as a windfall tax on energy suppliers with the proceeds used to shelter people at risk from fuel poverty. The rationale is clear. The big energy companies have made windfall gains from carbon trading schemes. It is reasonable to expect the people to benefit. There is a good news 
some good news for the Chancellor in higher oil prices. He's getting an extra five billion estimated in proceeds for the North Sea. I think it would be entirely reasonable uh, for Scotland to have a share of the windfall gains. We underspent, the lowest underspend in the history of the Scottish Government, but still an underspend of £42 million last year in terms of public sector spending in Scotland. £42 million is not an enormous sum in fiscal terms. It would be very handy at the present moment to help manage the impact of rising energy prices across the public sector. Fifth, we argue for the UK Government to take serious action in terms of liquidity in the financial system and the housing market. John Swinney, the Finance Secretary, sent a letter to the Chancellor a couple of weeks ago setting out our views and hopes across a range of issues. There hasn't been much response to date, it should be said, but I'd be extremely hopeful given the political imperative generated in Glasgow East with further political challenges to come that we'll see a distinct change in direction over this autumn. And action is required if the economy is not to move into recession. In the times that we're in at the present moment, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, any Chancellor of the Exchequer, it faces a choice. You can either spend because his ability to lower interest rates is hopelessly limited by the policy committees which have been established. You can, but you can either spend to stave off recession or you can spend to finance recession. I think spending to stave off recession is much, much better. And particularly at the present moment, an attempt to shelter people from rising energy costs it would have an effective response both in economic terms and restricting inflation and also helping to prevent the economy moving into a wage cost spiral, which would be the alternative. There is much to be done, ladies and gentlemen, and it's right and proper that the Scottish Government articulates the actions that are required by those who are charged with the responsibility. So the key levers of economic responsibility lie elsewhere. But we have discretion in Scotland. Not total discretion, not even majority discretion, but still discretion. And we have discretion which we would not have if we didn't have a parliament and a government. Some of the actions that have been taken over the last year <laughs> look and balance uh, remarkable for their foresight. The freezing of the council tax is a rather good thing when consumer spending is taking a hammering elsewhere. Uh, I listen occasionally to, to phone-ins, sometimes even on the BBC, Brian, uh, and when people south of the border go through the litany of things that are increasing, food prices, energy prices, council tax rises, well, the same things apply in Scotland apart from the council tax rises, and the fact that they don't apply in Scotland is actually one of the reasons, one of the reasons why retail sales in Scotland look rather better than they do elsewhere in the country. Uh, similarly, there are 150,000 small businesses in Scotland who are currently benefiting from a reduction or the elimination of their business rates burden. Rather handy when they bills are thumping through their letterboxes in the same way as they're thumping through the letterboxes of individual families in the country. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons why the employment situation in Scotland looks rather better than it does elsewhere in the country. But the government, even with limited taxation power, is determined to do more. We cannot, as a government in Scotland, on a fixed budget, change the scale of government spending in Scotland. We don't have that ability. No more than a local authority has that ability. That is part of the current constraints under which we operate. But we can change the timing of certain aspects of that spending. And in life and politics and economics, 
timing counts for a very good deal. And that is why this summer the Scottish Government reviewed what measures we could take quickly to address current financial difficulties. The result of the review is a programme of measures to help Scotland meet the immediate economic challenges, to promote growth, to support business confidence. And of course, we'll continue to examine, particularly for our partners in local government, what more we can do. Now that programme, ladies and gentlemen, has four main aspects. Firstly, to focus capital spending, spending capital spending in Scotland to, to support growth. Secondly, adjusting the planning and regulatory environment to help both business and individuals. Third, taking action to boost confidence, sort of action that's epitomised by the homecoming initiative for next year. And fourth, alleviating the effects of rising energy prices and promoting energy efficiency. Now, one of the chief priorities is to improve the housing stock in Scotland, a central part of our ambitions which are necessary to improve in the long term Scotland's rate of sustainable economic growth. A few weeks ago, my Deputy First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced major reforms to deliver lasting improvements in the housing system and market in Scotland. Uh, today, however, and tonight, I want to announce how we're going further. Uh, we set out a number of measures in a document published today in support of affordable homes, first-time buyers, homeowners under pressure from the credit crunch. As a critical part of that initiative, we're bringing forward up to £100 million from our overall affordable housing programme £100 million to be spent this year, which otherwise would have been spent in later years. Some £60 million of that can be committed now from government programmes in line with our concordat with local government. £40 million will come by agreement with our friends and partners in local government. The aim is for the whole of that £100 million to be spent this year rather than later. Timing is important because when the construction sector is flattened its back, when the housing crisis in Scotland is enduring, what you can do and buy now is going to have much more impact than what it might buy in two years' time, when times are hopefully easier. So it will accelerate the development of affordable housing in Scotland. It will stimulate activity and help to maintain employment and skills in our construction industry. And the focus is not just on keeping up the supply of affordable housing in the short term, but creating the conditions that will be needed for recovery when market conditions improve. Similarly, we can bring forward expenditure from European structural funding. On top of the 180 million we've already committed to spend in the programmes up to 2013, we'll ensure that a high share of that spending is front-loaded to support good quality projects in the next couple of years. The government is committed to promoting the enterprise and freeing Scottish businesses to succeed. So we'll intensify the reforms to simplify the planning system in Scotland. We're going to postpone the review of the system of developer contributions to avoid placing new burdens on development at this time. Scotland's environment is one of our key assets. It's a source of natural capital that can drive broad-based economic growth. Our potential in renewable generation is immense. I mentioned a few seconds ago that in the last four weeks there have been a billion pounds of investment announced, private sector investment in the renewable sector in Scotland. But overall, our potential in renewable energy generation is estimated at more than 60 gigawatts. That is 10 times Scotland's peak electricity consumption. So we have to put emphasis on setting, applying rules and ways which help businesses to start and promote sustainable growth. We have to keep simplifying the public sector, our regulators coming together to reduce the number of visits and inspections. 
and together with our stakeholders in fishing and the farming and other industries, we have to work to cut red tape where we can. Public sector procurement can help the economy at times of this. We have to boost awareness for local business and improve access to these opportunities. Our distinctive legal system can be a business advantage for Scotland. We can open up the market and promoting new international opportunities for a world-class legal service. Ladies and gentlemen, these reforms show the government's commitment to sustaining growth and employment. And across the economy, we work to support confidence, particularly in sectors of competitive advantage. The tourism initiative and the homecoming celebrations is an example of that. And financial services are we bringing together the key players, including the mortgage lenders, to examine the scope for easing the supply of credit to household and businesses. And fisheries are vital industry for Scotland, close to my own heart. We have in the last week announced new and targeted support, a £29 million package to support the adjustment to higher fuel prices to promote sustainability. The final strand of the programme, ladies and gentlemen, is important for businesses and households across Scotland. The fact that everyone is suffering from rising energy costs. We'll make it easier for businesses to increase in energy efficiency through the existing range of schemes. We'll encourage a greater take-up of available benefits and focus the Scottish Government's own fuel poverty measures on helping the most vulnerable. And we'll discuss with the energy companies ways of increasing the spend in Scotland on the carbon emissions reductions targets initiative. And lastly, we'll step up the promotion of greener transport options to encourage less fuel dependency. Now, I've gone through these things in some detail because I want to demonstrate that even in a subject like the economy, even in difficult times and tough times, even in an area where we have, in taxation terms, 15, that's 1-5% control of our fiscal position, there's plenty that can be done, that should be done, that must be done in order to affect and to change our circumstances. I hope and believe that whatever the fads and fashions from when Brian and I were at St Andrews University and socialism worldwide was still regarded as a, a viable and perhaps even an immediate economic and political option. I do hope and believe that one aspect has uh, remained and endures from these times, one thing that we don't go back to as a dominating theme of economic policy. Uh, and that is the idea that there is nothing that can be done to affect the economic cycle. That the economic cycle is something which is given, which is given in terms of overall financial markets and that the politicians who are elected, the governments who are entrusted with responsibility are actually helpless victims, as are the people of these fluctuations in the economic cycle. I hope we never go back to an age where that is believed with any credibility, because long before the idea of planned economies was being debated. There were economists like John Maynard Keynes uh, who argued forcefully and correctly that what government does or doesn't do, particularly in tough times, affects the welfare and health and vigour of the economy in the future. That is exactly what we can do in Scotland, even with limited powers. That is the direction that we can set ourselves. Clearly and obviously, I will continue to argue, I hope successfully, in the near, not the medium term, that we should have more power so as we can do much more of that, so as we can influence our circumstances to a much greater degree. We have to set ourselves ambitions, certainly of, by the end of this parliamentary term, of matching or exceeding the UK growth rate. We've actually done that in the last three quarters, but because the UK growth rate's been coming down, 
not because ours is going up. We have to set international standards to emulate the success of other small countries in Europe and match their growth rates. We have to recognise the strengths and resilience that exist among our economy and our people. We've got to maximise our advantages. And above all, as we consider these challenges, we should recognise that we would not be in a position to focus and to meet them unless we had that democratic heart beating at the centre of Scotland that Donald Dewar referred to. Other people internationally right now see Scotland not as backmarkers but as frontrunners. The FDI magazine has identified Scotland as Europe's place of the future over the last few months. They believe in our potential and so must we. There's no doubt that in this decade since Donald Dewar reopened the Scots Parliament. The nation is growing in confidence and stature. And today in the Parliament we see a, a different political culture struggling to emerge. The old lobbying culture, the idea that if only somebody else did something to help our circumstances then our condition would be improved is giving way, in my opinion, to a more open, flexible, democratic chamber based on multiple and sometimes extremely complex but nonetheless multiple coalitions of ideas and aspirations. In our people we see a new ambition, taking pride in its country and its potential with a confidence to elect a government that has unashamedly put Scottish interests first. Globally we see Scottish companies making stride in industries and markets of the future, building a platform for future success. In short, across the whole of society, Scotland is moving forward, whatever the short-term smoke of difficulties in the economy. In government, we see these changes. We welcome them wholeheartedly. We welcome the new and confident nation. We are proud to serve it. You have my assurance that we will work tirelessly in the months and years ahead to ensure that all of the country, all of our people, achieves that potential, which is so great. I think, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to the work of the democratic pioneers such as Donald Dewar, that whatever the constitutional configuration of our country, we can stand the opportunity to be one of the true successes of the 21st century. Thank you very much. First Minister, thank you very much indeed. I thank you on behalf of the audience and the enthusiastic response told the story there as well. I thought you blended extremely well the, 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 the pragmatic details of the, the economic policy approach with a philosophical exposition of the, both the advantages and, as you would see it, the, the limits of devolved power. Thank you very much indeed for delivering the annual NLS Donald Dewar lecture. We've got about, what, 10 minutes or so for questions, which is pretty good and pretty healthy. So if we can, if Jen can do that trick again with the lights. And uh, <laughs> there should be microphones around the place coming to, to catch the, the, the questions. I see a hand raised there right away. If there's a, someone can pop there, who's, who's going to be next after that? A hand waving frantically in the far corner. Let, let's take those two, please. Yes. Oh. No, the, the gentleman there, with the, that's the one. Thank you. Hi, Alex. Um, if the Macron, uh, Macron report in the 70s had been made public about the oil revenue um, and how it benefits Scotland, where do you think Scotland would be today against where it is? Uh, in a word, Norway, probably. <laughs> <It's> a, 
Uh, the Macron report is, is uh, 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 an acquaintance of mine, something I'm very much admire, is uh, Dr Gavin Macron, formerly uh, Chief Economic Advisor to successive uh, Scottish Office administrations, uh, more recently a, a professor and fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, a distinguished man in every regard, and a very fine economist, incidentally. In the 1970s, he, he wrote a report, uh, basically, I think, more than anything else, part of the, the Willie Ross uh, <laughs> objective of uh, waving something and saying, look, this is going to happen unless you make certain concessions on, on regional policy. Well, it, as I was saying, you know, I can see the, you know, the, the requirement for government secrecy and many things these days. Well, it, it was, to be fair, although the, it was released under the 30-year rule, uh, although a very uh, diligent researcher helped the process by getting it out of the, the national records as well. Uh, but what it was is absolute dynamite in terms of Macron was arguing uh, that uh, Scotland, uh, uh, with uh, independence entitled to an appropriate percentage of oil and gas revenues would be as rich as Switzerland. Uh, the, uh, simultaneously, the unionist politicians were arguing we'd be poorer than Bangladesh. <laughs> so there was something of a discrepancy between the economic advice they were receiving uh, and the political message that they were putting out. I mean, clearly, a major oil and gas supplier, which Scotland is and will remain for the next 40 or 50 years, uh, and incidentally, although it is arguable that there is less oil and gas to be extracted and has been extracted thus far, I mean, it's only an argument, incidentally, because I suspect that uh, we might well find that uh, there are greater discoveries to come. But let's just say that was true for, for the sake of argument. Then you know, any realistic view of future oil prices, the economic impact over the next 30, 40 years will be substantially greater in terms of revenues, the endowment effect, than the economic impact over the last 30, 40 years. In that sense, in terms of the economy, we're less than halfway through the oil and gas potential impact. Alex, I'll draw that to a close and bring in the, the other questioners up here. Yes, please. Alec, you stressed the, the need to, and you're talking about John Maynard Keynes, to spend our way out of recession. You also mentioned the pressure on families with the CPI index at 4.5%, but the actual real one, the RPI, is at 5.5% if you include mortgages. So there is pressure there. Now, tomorrow, over 100,000 public sector workers in Scotland will be actually out in strike because they've been limited to 2.5%. Now, I know that that's... Briefly, briefly, well, we would, please. But the point I'm making is this is actually something that the Scottish Government can do about it. It's not about something that happened okay. 30 years ago. It's about something you could actually do something about now. Okay, what are you going to do? First Minister. Well, all my experience tells me that in an inflation environment that there's no way to wage rise and price rise your way out of a problem. Uh, because a wage rise will become another price wise. And every experience we've had of inflationary pressures, wages and prices tell you that many sections of the community get left behind, those on fixed incomes, pensioners, uh, a range uh, of others. And yet you intervened to speed up the police pay, you intervened to assist well, on no, nurses. We, 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 we intervened on the police pay. Is this pay. not a case for distinctive treatment as well? We intervened on the police pay because an arbitration had ruled That's that fair. the police were entitled to a certain amount. Now, if That's you fair. take something to arbitration in a group of workers who do not have the right of industrial action, then I think the government is honour-bound to accept that you, arbitration. You if think, you don't, you if think you don't two like and a half that, is a fair, a fair offer? No, what I'm saying is that the pay policy 
uh, is set in the context of Westminster. The Scottish Government and local authorities in Scotland are living on a fixed income. They cannot pursue an independent pay policy in Scotland given what's coming from Westminster. If you listen, and I know you did, Bob, to the, the arguments I was putting forward, I think the sensible thing for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to do is to shelter people from the full extent of cost rises at the present moment. If the government were taking action to do that, then they would find people much more understanding of the economic circumstances okay. in wage pressures. Okay. Which is why this autumn, in my opinion, what needs to be done is sheltering people from energy cost rises which are at the source of the rise in every other commodity. And action in that respect, incidentally, would be much fairer across the community Thank, thanks than would, for example, getting into a spiral of wage and price increases. Right, thanks for that, Alex. I see a hand raised way at the back there, if we can take that. There's no way going to get you all in, I'm afraid, but let's, uh, let's try and get a couple more. Oh, a few more. You, you don't mind going a little bit? Go, okay. right. uh, do you promise another political earthquake this time in Glenrothes? Well, I, I go on the Gary Player uh, idea, you know, the, when he won the Masters in the 1980s at something, well, what they thought then was a great age of about 45, I think it's pretty young now myself, but they, uh, he was told at the end of the round, it was the most magnificent round that the journalists had ever seen, but he'd been really lucky, uh, and he said, well, it's a funny thing, the more I practice, the luckier I get. So what I can <laughs> promise in uh, Central Fife is that the SNP will be practicing hard, will be taking absolutely nothing for granted will be working as hard, if not harder, than we worked in Glasgow East and we'll let the people judge. But if I think the arguments for the victory in Glasgow East were pertinent. I think, they, I think the folk in Glasgow East didn't make a mistake. I think they knew what they were doing. And I think, incidentally, the change in political temperature in Scotland is going to be part of the political pressure that brings about uh, a change in economic policy to shelter people from might, might it also Might it also bring about a change in number 10 Downing Street? If Labour loses an election in the constituency, right next door to Gordon Brown, is it the, the end of his premiership? Well, I said Glasgow East, I was more interested in a change of policy than I was in a change of Prime Minister, and I, I think I'm still of that mind. It's that you want to target the, the policies to change. I, I think that's the well, Do you the think there would be greater thing. pressure upon him to stand up? Well, I think he's under substantial pressure just anyway. now, but uh, the way to relieve the pressure is to change his policies, and I think he should do that sooner rather than later. Uh, I know that Gordon was at the book festival. I don't know if did they ever go to he Gordon's? Well, hands up, you went to Gordon's one. Well, some folk must there have. Yeah, well done. Well done. How many have you been to, Evelyn? Uh, this is my eighth. Oh, this is a. Are you going to the Sean Connery one? Yes. Oh, well oh, done. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's saving the best all last. <laughs> Can anyway. I get your ticket? No, 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 it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> well, anyway, look, yeah. Gordon doesn't have his problems to seek. Uh, two pieces of advice change his policies and cheer up, for God's sake. <laughs> Take a hand. See a hand raised there, please. Thanks. Yeah. I'm sorry, Mr. Salmon, I, I, I wanted to disagree a bit about you on one point. Um, uh, before the election last year, one of your uh, opponents talked about the dangers of independence. And I just wondered, what other country would one of its uh, politicians come out with a statement? So despite what you say, I think the Scottish cringe is alive and kicking. How do you cure this condition? Briefly, if well, you would, Alex, I, I, it may be alive and kicking, but it's not as much alive and it's not as much kicking as it once was. I, I think we're look. Every society uh, has uh, problems in, in terms of how it regards itself. Every society goes through crises of confidence. We went through a 300-year one. Uh, uh, 
I, I, I believe we're getting better. All right, <laughs> I believe we're on the route of recovery. I, I think if you know, if Scotland had a psychoanalyst, we'd be paying them off, uh, <laughs> or her off, because they've done their job well. Uh, I think things are getting better, and one of the aspects of understanding and contributing to that is to recognise, you know, we can look at Scotland and we can see, I can look at Scotland, I can see a hundred things that are wrong. I, I see a, a frustration every day, sometimes with myself. You, I mean, you listen to my wife, what she says about it in terms of the government policies, we can, we can do that. But I also see good and better and strong things happening. Uh, I see a literary and artistic scene, which is an extraordinary uh, example of the vigour of a, a, a national consciousness and a country's expression of itself. I see substantial good things happening in areas and sectors of the economy. I see people triumphing over their circumstances on a day and daily basis. We've been holding a series of receptions for the voluntary sector uh, in these cabinets that are going around Scotland. You know, we do that before the night before the cabinet. And you know what these folk always say? That first they all say, they say, why are we invited here? Uh, because despite the fact that doing exceptional work in the community, we haven't got round in many areas of life to recognising the work that people do. You know, we hold lots of parties in Scotland, we don't do enough recognitions. Uh, and I think all of us just have to recognise, not be blind to the faults and foibles and problems and difficulties and injustices that we certainly still have, but accent the positive strengths that we have as a community and recognise in terms of national psyche and in terms of a few other things, Scotland's getting off the couch and is on the men. Right, it's a sense of, a sense of willingness to, to suspend standing orders to keep going for maybe five more minutes, is that? Yeah, go on. That all right, yeah, well, he, well he's, he, he's up for it, but they, they, they've, they've got shows to go to and things like that. You, you yeah. think you're the only act in town, Alex? No, no. For goodness <laughs> sake. No. Hey, my, son's, my son's got a football match to go to, you know what I mean? Ah, no, no, it's coming Serious out. stuff, serious <laughs> stuff. Okay, let's take two more questions. One, one hand, I haven't got my specs on, so I can't see, but there's a hand raised vaguely at the back there. Can I, I borrow them? Now? Please, yeah. You mentioned socialism. Do you think people are voting SNP because they want an independent Scotland or because in the absence of anything like an effective Labour Party, you are what we have on the left? I, I think the SNP's programme is a, a social democratic programme. It's attractive to, let's call it, mainstream Scotland. Uh, but, you know, the people say, look, they're only voting because they like the government or like policies or whatever. I like the programme, it's all their reaction. We actually did a, a, a wee poll of our own in Glasgow East as we were canvassing people. And although the SNP vote you know, went through the roof in terms of support, it was still less than what we recorded as the independence vote in Glasgow East. And incidentally, in the constituency in Glasgow East, the problem has never been you know, for us with the independence vote. It's been very high, believe me, for all sorts of reasons in Glasgow East. Uh, but the problem had been previously with the SNP vote. So perhaps what we're seeing is the SNP vote catching up with a thirst for constitutional change. Now, I don't claim for a second that everybody votes SNP is 100% convinced about independence. What I do claim, as we debate and converse about this issue, and as we relate the bread and butter stuff, as we relate the things on the economy and the social services of Scotland, the ability to manage our way out of a recession, the ability to mobilise the assets and resources of this country, as we relate these bread and butter issues to the Constitution, people will come to what I think is an inevitable conclusion that in any world, in this world, in the modern world, you can never have full autonomy, but get as much autonomy as you possibly can if you want to 
ensure First. the survival of the nation, the culture and the economy that's at its beating heart. Alex, in the context of that reference to Labour, the Labour Party in Scotland, of course, are going through a, a leadership election. Which of the three contenders frightens you the most? Which one has you has you sleepless? Well, I'm sleepless for all three. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sleepless in Butte House. Uh, Incidentally, some of the SNP MSPs are going to be voting or not voting in the Labour Party contest because they've got uh, ballot papers out around affiliated unions. So I think there's three SNP MSPs are going to be poised over their ballot paper. <laughs> who's maybe, maybe I should send them an... I'll, go I'll, on, give I'll, us a tip. Who well, do you, okay, who, who, who's going to win? Who's going to win? Sent, no, I've sent out instructions to these three MSPs. I want one of them to vote for Kathy Jimmison. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm watching the, the contest with, with enormous, uh, enormous interest. Of I should, uh, the, the Liberal Democrat won the same. I should have asked about that as uh, well. I'm watching the with, Liberal with, Democrat contest with even more interest even more than I'm watching the Labour Okay, I promise one more, so we'll sneak in one question. And since you've been very patient, right there at the front here, please. Have you hang on a tick till my microphone comes so that the assembled audience can all hear you as well. <laughs> Things are going well. The dog's woken up. I know, yeah. <laughs> If, it, if it's true that um, if we don't learn from history, we have fated to repeat it, what can we do about the school curriculum? Oh. Uh, well, we can teach Scottish history for a start. Yes. If that's, <laughs> if that's, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, one thing, I, I think Fiona Hislop is doing a fantastic job in education. I'll tell you why. Because we've had three national events, the conversation events, with questions under the sun. And Fiona, in all three events in uh, Dumfries and Inverness and today in Pitlochry, has been asked one question. Uh, and for that, she got a big round of applause. <laughs> uh, now, the point I'm making is all the other cabinet secretaries have been under the caution, this issue and that issue. And Fiona's been sitting there <laughs> beautifully on the, uh, on, on the stage. I think there's a lot to be done in education. Again, I don't think we should forget the strengths that we have. But underlying if we, and Brian will allow me just to say this. Uh, country, we've been pretty good actually educating folk over the centuries. We haven't been quite as good at making sure we had an economic advantage or a competitive advantage in Scotland. And if we just educate our folk, but don't have a competitive advantage, then what you produce is the best educated airport departure lounges in the world. And to a great extent, Scottish economic and political and social history, that's what we've done for a few generations. Now what we've got to do is both. We've got to educate the people, mobilise the human capital, have that strength in our community and have the competitive advantage so that these people, these fantastic young Scots coming forward, have the chance and opportunity to deploy their talents and skills in their own country if they so choose. And if we can do these things, both these things, keep educating our folk to the highest standard and have a competitive advantage, then, well, we won't just not go far wrong, we'll be unstoppable in this century and that's what we've got to aim to do. And ladies and gentlemen, it's been a wonderful event this evening. Thanks for your attendance. Thanks to the Book Festival. Thanks to the National Library of Scotland. Will you join me in thanking Alex Salmond?